with it uh, being vacation season, uh, one of the things that I always enjoyed as a kid uh, going on vacation, I enjoyed the, uh, the destination, I, I enjoyed where we were going, but, but quite often I, I uh, would find myself in the van as we were driving to those places, and, and I was the, the kid in the back that had the atlas that was following along, you know, trying to see, and then, you know, this was before GPS and, and all that was, uh, um, was, was being used, and so I would, you know, try and look at a road sign, see where we were, and, and I think I maybe a couple times got to try my hand at navigation. Uh, my parents probably already knew where we were going and how to get there, but they maybe let me <laughs> feel like I was directing us a little bit, but uh, uh, there's just part of me that's always kind of had, a, had an appreciation for maps. Um, well, the other day I came across a, a map called, uh, I'll see if I can say this Latin name right, it's the Tabula Putingeriana. It's a 13th century copy of a 4th century Roman map. So it's a really, really old map of a really, really, really old map. And, and go ahead and put the first one up here, Jacob. It's like a 20-foot long map, and so I know the picture, it's a lot longer than it is tall. That, is, that was a map of the known world in the time of the fourth century, fourth century Rome. And you kind of have to use your imagination a little bit, but the streak running through the middle, that's the Mediterranean Sea, okay? You gotta, gotta kind of let yourself, let your mind go with that a little bit, but that's the Mediterranean Sea there, that, that blue streak. And, you know, I, I, doesn't, I know it doesn't quite look like it, but um, I, I did kind of blow up some areas on the map so we can get our bearings a little bit. So go ahead to the next one. Jacob, so you can see the map on the top there, and if you blow it up, this thing that's got a circle around it there, that's, that's Rome, okay? And, and you can kind of, maybe, maybe you can see it, the, you know, all roads lead to Rome. You've heard, uh, you've heard that saying before, the roads are all leading to Rome in, the, in that picture there. So that's, that's Rome, and, and you can kind of see, again, if you let your mind go, Italy is shaped like a boot, right? you can kind of see that this is Italy in the middle. And you can see over here on this side is kind of the, the heel of the boot and the toe of the boot below that. This island underneath it is, is marked Sicily, right, right where Sicily should be on a map. Are you, you kind of starting to see it a little bit more? Go ahead to the next one, Jake. Uh, this is, uh, if you can kind of see this design there, that tower thing, that's Constantinople. That's another big Roman, a uh, big city in, in terms of Rome in the fourth century. Go ahead to the next one, Jacob. Um, this is uh, Syrian Antioch right there. Um, and, and go to the next one. Jerusalem is, is on here, but in the eyes of Rome, Jerusalem is just another city. So it's right over here, and it actually starts with an H because it's in Latin. So it says Jerusalem. But, you know, if you know, what the, if you know what kind of the land of Israel looks like, I'm going to trip over this at some point, this is the Sea of Galilee, that little blue circle there. And, of course, out of the Sea of Galilee flows the Jordan River. And then you've got the Dead Sea down here. And then Jerusalem is right where it should be, pretty close to the, to the Dead Sea. So it's just, it's fascinating to see. Obviously, this isn't a to-scale map. But it's still incredibly accurate, you know, when it comes to, comes to maps. And now, now, all that to say, what I really want to draw our attention to this morning is this next one. So this is all the way over here on the left-hand side. And, and the reason this is in white is because they had to reconstruct this part of the map. 
But what you see here, this white area right in the middle, is Spain. And, and above that, I guess, would be uh, uh, Portugal. But this is Spain there. And then below Spain, across the Mediterranean Sea, if you know your geography, is Africa. And, and that's Morocco right here. So does anybody know this little strait in between Spain and Morocco? Does anybody know what that is? Strait of Gibraltar. I heard a few people say it. So go ahead to the next one, Jake. This, of course, is a to-scale map, right? The Strait of Gibraltar right there. But go ahead to the next one. This is, this is what it looks like on that map. And I blew it up a little bit more because I want us to see those two pillars that are on the map right in the middle there. It wasn't called the Strait of Gibraltar then. But those two pillars are called the, uh, the two pillars of Hercules, two pillars of Hercules. And we're not going to get into the, you know, the whole Greek mythology that played into that name. But suffice it to say that those two pillars on either side of the channel stood to represent the end of the world. And, and you can see it, you know, when you look up at the top. I mean, this is all the way over on, on the far west side. I mean, th that's the end, right? That's the end of the map. And so those two pillars in, in Roman thought at that time, that was the end of the world. And that understanding of our world dominated all the way up through the 12th, the 13th, the 14th century. In fact, there's, there's Spanish coins that they've found from the early 15th century that has a picture of those two pillars on it with the Latin phrase, ne plus ultra, which means no more beyond. They put it on their coins that there is, basically Spain was saying we control everything and there's nothing beyond those two pillars. We, we control it all. That's what Spain would, was saying. And of course, as more and more people began, began to accept that the world was round, right, the first thought was, well, if this big long map is round, then we can sail west and we'll get to the East Indies over here, far on the east side. And that's, of course, you know, what we learn in school, what Columbus was looking for, right? If I sail west past those pillars, it's just going to come right around and I'm going to get the East Indies. Valid thought, but in reality, the world was a whole lot bigger than was realized. So long story short, Columbus found the new world, right? He sailed west, he sailed past those pillars, found the new world, and the Spanish coins were changed. They changed their coins after that discovery to say plus ultra, more beyond. Spain realized, uh-oh, there's something beyond those two pillars, more beyond. For so long, they assumed there was nothing beyond that. They found out they were wrong. Now, to transition into our passage today, you know, too often, I think, we as humans, either we assume that or, or maybe at the very least, we live our lives as if there's nothing beyond this life. In fact, that, that was the predominant belief in the Greco-Roman culture in, in which the church in Corinth was located. That was the belief. There's, there's really nothing more beyond this life. People lived in a very ne-plus-ultra fashion. No more beyond. Not just in a geographic sense, but in a spiritual sense as well. They thought there's nothing more beyond this life. What Paul firmly teaches in our passage today is that we can't think in that ne plus ultra way. We have to think plus ultra. There's more beyond this life. In fact, much more as we're going to see this morning. 
so if you remember last week, uh, we talked at the beginning of chapter 4 in 2 Corinthians how Paul referred to himself using terms like um, jars of clay, afflicted, perplexed, persecuted, uh, struck down, mortal flesh. If Paul was, was really living in a nay plus ultra world, if there was really nothing beyond this life, man, we ought to pity him, shouldn't we? I mean, when he's describing himself in that way, you know, if that was all that Paul had to look forward to, then, then I think he would quickly lose heart. You know, if, if following the example of Jesus and dying to himself was the end of the story, then what good is Christianity? What, what good is the message of the gospel if there's nothing more beyond this life? But Paul knew there was something beyond this life. And so listen to his words. We'll pick it up here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 13, if you'd like to follow along. Paul says, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. Paul quotes here that, that quote, I believe and so I spoke. He's quoting from Psalm 116. And in that psalm, King David describes a time when he almost died, but God saved him. God rescued him. Uh, David maybe even should have died, but he didn't. He viewed his rescue as, as a type of resurrection. And, and because he was given this new life, he, he spoke about his experience. David gave praise to God. Paul is telling us here that, that he as well, he, he, he must speak. Right? He must speak because he experiences new life also. But different from David's experience in this psalm, Paul speaks of his actual death followed by his actual resurrection in the power of Jesus. Paul hasn't gotten there quite yet, but he knows that when he does die, that there will be a physical resurrection that follows. And, and he went to, Paul went to great lengths on this topic in 1 Corinthians 15, the letter he had sent to the church years before. He talked great lengths there. He says that Jesus is the first fruits of this resurrection. Paul says we're going to participate in the resurrection as well when Jesus returns to earth. Uh, he says, in Christ shall all be made alive. So there's this firm promise that, that has been made to each and every child of God that Paul is holding on to here. And it's what allowed Paul to persevere through all that hardship that he mentioned at the beginning of chapter four. And then listen to, to how he continues. Picking it up in verse 16. Paul says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction, you remember everything he was talking about, persecuted, <laughs> struck down? Here he says, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 
living, living in a nay plus ultra fashion usually means we're living according to what we can see. Doesn't it? You know, I, if, if I can't see it, then it must not exist. I can't see the new world past those pillars, so it must not exist. There must not be anything there. All right, I can't see eternal life beyond this one, so there must not be anything there. That, that's, a, that's a ne plus ultra, no more beyond line of thinking. And I think one of Satan's greatest weapons against us is to kind of cause us to have tunnel vision, to, to only focus on what we can physically see with our eyes. You know, when we focus on nothing but this life, focus on nothing but what we can see here and now, we can become very disheartened, can't we? I mean, we see our physical bodies breaking down and fading away. We see our struggles then as, as all-consuming and, and destiny-defining. We, we see our experience as transient and wonder, well, what's the point of all of this? But because we live in a plus ultra reality, because there is more beyond this life, we have to keep our focus on that reality. That's what Paul's talking about. So rather than being consumed by the physical suffering that that Paul was enduring in his body, he was able to see his inner self being renewed day by day. You know, rather than seeing his struggles as all-consuming, he, he was able to view them as light, momentary afflictions, which were preparing him for this incredible glory that, that comes in the next life. You know, rather than seeing his existence as transient, Paul focused on the eternal nature of his existence. So our vision must not be exclusively on things that are seen, our knowledge of the promise of the resurrection has to cause us to look ahead, if you will, to the things that are unseen. That's what Paul's leading us to here. And I'll, you know, I'll share with you where, where this is playing itself out um, presently in my own life. Um, tomorrow, my, my mom's having surgery to remove... Uh, uh, two masses that they've found within her. You know, a fairly serious surgery, like four to six week recovery after that. And, and the temptation for me is to be consumed with the effects that I can see, right? The temptation is, you know, I, I want the surgery to be successful. I want the masses to, to not be cancerous. I want my mom's recovery to be a smooth one. And, and, you know, I, I don't think it's sinful to pray in that fashion, to, to, you know, pray those desires to God. But I have to, I've been being challenged, I've been challenged by Paul to not be consumed with a nay plus ultra line of thinking, to not only be thinking about the things that I can see here and now, because if that's my focus, if that's all that my focus is, and one of those things that I just mentioned doesn't go quite how I want it to, then I'm wrecked, right? Where does that leave me? I, 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 can, be, I can become disheartened very quickly. But, but in God's strength, according to God's promises, if I, can, if I can keep in mind, keep focused on things that are unseen that Paul talks about, I know that no matter what happens tomorrow, 
And in the coming days, uh, this promise of resurrection remains. I mean, this promise to my mom specifically will not be shaken. I mean, uh, and so to be focused on that, I've found has is, is been important to these last few weeks. You know, the glory that, that my mom will experience in her physical resurrection is beyond all comparison with any glory she would experience in a, in a successful surgery and recovery here in the, in the here and now. Um, now, I want that. You know, I do want that, but but I have to remember, I'm not, I'm not promised a smooth, worry-free life. My mom's not promised a smooth, worry-free life. You know, none of us are. None of us have been given that promise. Jesus actually calls us to follow him and expect to participate in, in suffering and, and in hatred and hardship that was shown to him in his life. But I have been promised with the resurrection I have been promised resurrection with Jesus. My mom's been promised resurrection with Jesus. All of us in Christ are promised resurrection with Jesus. And, and it's, it's this resurrection, what, what lies beyond, right, plus ultra, that is upon what we must be focused. That's what Paul's leading us to here in this passage. And he goes on then in chapter 5 to, to kind of talk about the practical re-outcomes of this promise. So the, the first promise deals, or the, or the first outcome, I guess, deals with our resurrection itself, our resurrected bodies. Listen to what he says. Chapter 5, verse 1. Paul says, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. You know, because Paul described his current body as a tent, we can see that he's referencing the, the temporary nature of it. You know, he, he uh, called himself a jar of clay in chapter 4. Here his body is a tent, which he knows sooner or later will be destroyed. He knows that, and we know that, right? We live in a, when he, we live in a fallen world suffering under the effects of sin, and, and as a result, these bodies break down as they age. Even from birth, these bodies are not flawless. They will eventually completely give out on us. It's not a fun thing to think about, but that's the reality in a, in a world that is marred by sin. And again, in, in, a, in a nay plus ultra world, in a no more beyond world, that is a terrible, terrible, terrible thing, right? You know, if there's nothing beyond this life, then it becomes imperative that we keep this body going for as long as we can, no matter the cost, you know, no questions asked. It becomes imperative. But Paul is focused on what is beyond, right? He knows that when this tent of a body is destroyed, he's been promised, I love it, he switches from tent to building. He's promised a building that God has made for him that's going to last for eternity. 
you know, this body is fading away, but, but there is a much, much better one that is awaiting us. You know, it, 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 it made me think of uh, when kids lose teeth. We're kind of in the middle of this. We're in the thick of this in, uh, in our house now. You know, we celebrate and we cheer in our house when one of our kids loses a tooth, right? I imagine your experience is probably similar, something like that. Maybe there's a little, some tears in the process getting there, but when that tooth comes out, we, rece- we celebrate, right? We rejoice in that. Can you imagine if, you know, a couple weeks ago, uh, Caitlin lost a tooth. Can you imagine if when that happened, Megan and I started running around the house screaming in hysterics? I mean, can, can you imagine if we burst into tears and just started mourning the fact that she lost a baby tooth? We'd be crazy, right? And, and we know that. I mean, why? Why would we be crazy? Because we know... We know that in order for her adult teeth to come in, those baby teeth have to come out. And we know that those adult teeth are, are much, much better suited for a life of eating, right? We know that those baby teeth have to come out. And we know that when they do come out, the adult teeth, the better adult teeth come in. We have perspective, right? We have that perspective about losing teeth, and so when a baby tooth comes out, we just understand that's, that's the next step in the process. That understanding informs our actions. That's why Megan and I don't run around the house screaming when one of our kids loses a tooth. So if we translate that to our bodies as a whole, unless Jesus returns before our death, and, and it's entirely possible, we, we we ought to be ready for that. But unless Jesus returns before our death, this current body must pass away before my resurrected body will be given to me. That's the order. You know, short of Christ's return, I will not experience my resurrected body until this one that I have now comes to death, until it is destroyed by death. And not only that, because of that promise, Paul says that, that, that he groans. He, he longs for that day when he will experience that new resurrected body. He, he passionately anticipates the day when, when, as Paul says, what is mortal will be swallowed up in life. I think that's such a great picture. You know, because of what lies ahead, Paul doesn't allow fear to dictate the here and, here and now for his life. You know, Paul tells the church in Thessalonica not to mourn death like those who have no hope. They had hope because of God's promise, because of that promise of physical, bodily resurrection. Not just in Jesus, but in all of Jesus' people and all those that have found salvation in him. And I think there's a great word for us in there for today. You know, we live in a world where, where personal safety is, is a very big thing, is it not? And, and, and this makes sense. This makes sense when the vast majority of the secular culture holds a, a nay plus ultra reality, right? If, if there's nothing more beyond this life, that it makes sense that we would be absolutely as safe as we could possibly be. But because we as Christians have been given this promise of resurrection, we ought not live in that manner. Now, you know, don't hear me say we shouldn't take precautions, right? I'm not saying we ought to be reckless, right? We wear seatbelts. We, we don't jump off tall buildings. We, we follow the instructions from the pharmacist, right? We, we take precautions in life as we should. 
But there is a difference, I think, between, between valuing this life and fearing the end of this life. I think those are two very different things. We should very much value this life. But we don't have to fear the end of this life. I don't want to trivialize death, but, but I think the losing a tooth analogy is a helpful one for us. And I realize that there can be quite a bit of pain and suffering that, that precedes our physical death here, but, but what awaits is, is glorious as Paul talks about it. There's a resurrected body that will be given to us. And so because of that promise, we can't, we can't let fear of death drive our actions. You know, we, we have to prayerfully discern what it means to, to uh, look to the things that are unseen in whatever situation we, we face. You know, we have to discern what it means to be prepared for the coming destruction of this earthly body and, and the promise of an eternal resurrected body. And, and as we seek to do that, I, I think Paul gives us some guidance. The last section we'll read for today, verses 6 through 10, I think Paul gives us some really good examples here. He says, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home in the Lord. So, whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil." So, so what does it look like to, to live our lives in light of the coming resurrection? Well, first, I think Paul says we live our lives with good courage. Good courage, uh, with boldness, with, with confidence, whether at home in the body or in this life or, or with the Lord in the next life. Either way, we are blessed. Either way. Yes, what lies beyond is best, it is of glory beyond all comparison, like Paul says, but, but where we are right now is good too. Right, God working within us, renewing us day by day, is, is not a bad place to be. That's a good place to be. Uh, we, we will face suffering and hardship in this life. There's difficulties that come upon us. But God is renewing us day by day from within. What he's doing now in our lives is preparing us for this eternal weight of glory, as Paul says, that, that will come to us. So even though we can't always see exactly what God is doing in this life, we walk by faith, as Paul says. He is renewing us day by day. We trust that what God is doing is for our benefit. And so as a result, we can live this life with confidence and, and, and be of good courage, like Paul states. Second, I, I think we, we live to please God. Whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. We, we, we sang in the song this morning, every day it's you I live for. It's that type of thinking. Yeah, we can be led to believe that the length of our time on earth is the most important thing. We can be led to believe that. We can be tempted to live as though that were the case. But but of greater importance is what we do with our time on this earth. 
So I'd, you know, honestly, I'd rather live 35 years aiming to please God than 100 years aiming to please myself. It's, it's, it's not the length of our lives that is of utmost importance. It's, it's how we live. It's what we do with that, aiming to please the Lord. As Paul says, you know, the things that are seen in this life can pull us and they can consume us, can give us that tunnel vision, but we have to look to the unseen things as we live out life. You know, we, we, we must live to please God even though we don't physically see him every day. Even though we don't see him with these physical eyes, we still ought to live in a way that pleases him. We ought to live focused on what is beyond and is currently unseen because eventually it will be seen. What we can't see right now, we will see someday. And, and Paul, Paul ends focusing on that in verse 10. I think that's the third piece of guidance. We have to live focused on the resurrection, focused on the time when the unseen will be seen. So not only does a physical resurrection await us, but Paul talks about this accounting before the throne of Jesus. Right? The day will come when, when we stand before Jesus and receive what is due for what we've done in this body. That day is coming. Now, Paul's not talking about salvation by works. This has nothing to do with earning salvation. Paul is very clear on that through all his writings. The Bible is clear on that in all its pages. But we are told here, we are told other places, that there will be some kind of reward, some kind of accounting for the good that has been done in Christ in this life. As God uh, renews us day by day, you know, as we live obedient to him and the strength that he provides, we're going to be blessed in some way at the judgment seat of Christ. And there's a lot of speculation about what that will look like. You know, I, we can guess, but we're not quite sure. Um, and, and we can't allow pride to puff up within us because it's God who saves us. It's, it's God who gives us new life. It's God who renews us. It's God who works through us. And yet, for some reason, we're going to be rewarded for that. I, not anything I would have ever come up with, but I guess I'll take it because that sounds like a pretty good deal to me. So, uh, you know, again, whatever that day is going to look like, we have to live in light of it. We have to live knowing that this unseen day now will be seen at some point. We know we will be resurrected bodily. We will have these new physical bodies given to us and some other type of reward for, the, for, for what God has done through us. Uh, it, can, it can be hard to get into the details beyond that, but we still live for it. We ought to still live for that day that is coming. Now, we're going to take communion together this morning, and, and elders, you guys can go ahead and, and come down. The temptation can be to live, <clears throat> to live a ne plus ultra kind of life, no more beyond. And we can become so focused on what we see that we forget that there's more that we can't see. I mean, Spain. Spain was sure there was nothing beyond the pillars of Hercules. Spain was dead wrong, right? I mean, the piece of land on which this building sits is proof that there was more beyond those pillars. But give Spain credit. Once they realized that they were wrong, they shifted their focus. There was much more beyond, and, and so they willingly accepted that they lived in a plus ultra world, and, and they changed their coins to reflect that. 
there is much more for us beyond this life. Our, our resurrected and glorified bodies await us. You know, it, it's a wonderful promise given to us by God. Because of that promise, we ought to long for what awaits us. And because of that promise, then, we ought to live accordingly here and now. You know, the only reason we have that promise, the only reason we have that hope is because of the work of Jesus upon the cross. He, he was the, the, the first fruits, as Paul says, of the resurrection. Jesus' physical body was raised back to life. We get to participate in that, not, not, not metaphorically, not, not just spiritually, physically. We get to participate in that someday. That's going to be wild, won't it? That's going to be a wild day, but it is a sure day that is coming, and and we only have that because of this sacrifice that Jesus has made for us. It renews us inwardly now and then outwardly later. You know, it's only as as we give ourselves over to Jesus, we put our faith in him, we accept what he's done for us on the cross, that that we will experience that resurrected life of Jesus as well. It's a wonderful promise that that we've been given. Aren't you glad we live in a plus ultra world? (laughs) I'm so glad for that. So we're going to celebrate that by taking communion this morning. Um, uh, It will be a little different. We've got pre-packaged elements this morning. So the, the bread, if you can call it bread, that might be a stretch of the word bread. But the bread and the juice are all in the same thing together. So just take one when it's passed. And then, uh, um, and then we'll do as we normally do. We'll, um, I'll share a thought. We'll take the bread, and then we'll, um, we'll take the juice after that.